Thanks for joining us on Cranford Radio. For the second time in a month, I'm pleased to be joined by an author. Today's guest is Luke Jared Cummer, the author of an Audible original audiobook, Takers Mad. Luke, welcome to Cranford Radio. Hey, thanks very much, Bernie. I appreciate it. As was the case with Robin Geigel's book that we talked about in our last episode, Cranford also plays a prominent role in Takers Mad. Robin's books are fictional legal thrillers that take place in the present day, but Takers Mad is what might be considered historical fiction that happens in an earlier time. If you would, without giving away too much, uh, tell us a bit about the story and how Cranford plays a part, if you would, please. Love to. There was a, a murder that occurred in New York in the early 1890s. A woman was found uh, in a seedy hotel, uh, and she was, she was in a, in a, in a bad state. Uh, and almost from the get-go, this brought to mind the Jack the Ripper killings from a few years ago in London. And it's hard to say now how big of a deal that was at the time, but it really was this worldwide phenomenon that hadn't been seen before. And so it was on the front pages of papers in London, uh, but also on the front pages for weeks in New York uh, and in Hong Kong and Cairo and Sydney, and became this worldwide phenomenon. And so you had people uh, as, in places as far flung as South Africa, Jamaica, saying they, either they had seen Jack the Ripper or they were Jack the Ripper. It was this huge thing um, that's hard to understate significance. So when there was this case in New York, just a few years after, uh, it's not surprising that parallels were drawn almost, almost instantly. And the actual crime did resemble uh, in many ways uh, what had happened to the victims in London uh, and also the area of the fourth ward, which is located near today's South Street Seaport, is in some ways uh, because it was being newly populated by immigrants. It's close to the water, so uh, it catered a lot to sailors and dock workers and transients in a similar way to uh, the East End. There were similarities there, too, um, and in popular imagination. Soon after the, the murder, uh, the coroner uh, investigating the case claimed unequivocally that the crime in New York had been committed by the same person who had done the killings in London. So this set off this frenzy. It was this huge citywide manhunt, uh, this, this dragnet that brought in dozens and dozens of suspects and you know, created uh, almost pandemonium uh, among the public. It became this huge thing. And then a suspect was eventually identified, a man who was initially uh, brought in as a witness, uh, but then later was charged with the murder. It was this, this man who was known at the time as Frenchie in the popular press. Uh, he actually was an Algerian immigrant who didn't speak a lot of English or French for that matter. He was tried uh, in this trial that uh, received this also outsized media coverage on the front pages uh, for weeks in New York and abroad. And then later convicted of murder. In the end, he spent over a decade in Sing Sing and the insane asylum at Fishkill, but he was ultimately freed by a governor's pardon. And there is where there's this Cranford connection in that the new evidence that was turned in in 1901 uh, was turned in by someone who is from Cranford. This story, um, while it had so much attention when it was the turn of the 20th century, it was not something that was widely known in the 21st century. What drew you to this story and to write about it? 
Well, I'd written a biographical novel in 2019, and I enjoyed that much after a, a career in journalism. Uh, this was a change of pace, uh, but uh, something that I really liked. And I was frankly looking for another great story that was set around the same time period. Uh, my 2019 novel, The Blue Period, took place in Spain and France, and I wanted something closer to home. So I was looking for a great story, maybe in New York, New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, this one, I was frankly surprised that uh, more has not been written about it uh, in the contemporary era. It's, it's got all the ingredients, right? It's got a unsolved crime. It's got this connection to this media phenomenon that is is Jack the Ripper. Uh, it's got all these these great ingredients, and so I was I was happy to dig in. What I never expected to do was to find new evidence in a murder case that's 130 years old during the course of researching a historical novel. Uh, but I was certainly pleased uh, to do that. And the, the new findings shaped what I ended up writing uh, in Takers Mad. The prisoner, Amir Ben Ali, he, as I say, was incarcerated in Sing Sing and the asylum at Fishkill. And he was campaigning for his, his release from the governor. It's law that all correspondences with the governor have to be preserved. Uh, his, his pleas for pardons, that is. I knew this. And I headed up to Albany on a cold winter day, uh, early in 2020, to see what I might find. Well, lo and behold, there were waiting four boxes that they'd hauled out of storage, um, full of letters and signed petitions and newspaper clippings that were not available online. And then the most incredible thing of all, uh, in this envelope, I found a brass ward key with the tag 31. Uh, and this was significant because when the woman, Carrie Brown, a.k.a. Shakespeare, uh, that's the murdered woman, was found um, in 1891, uh, her hotel room door was locked and that key was gone, presumably in the possession of the murderer. When Amir Ben Ali was arrested the next day, he did not have that key on his person. But more than a decade later, someone turned in this key. The same key that had led to him being behind bars ended up being his key, as it were, to freedom. And now, here 130 years later, that key was sitting in my hands. Uh, it was really wow. a phenomenal electric feeling now that it's hard to describe. The person who turned in that key went through incredible lengths to remain anonymous. But eventually it was uncovered that it was a, a person who was described often as a landowner in New Jersey um, or sometimes a friend of the governor, but was in fact a George Damon who was a business owner. He actually had a manufacturing of printing presses and uh, a, a foundry near Newspaper Row. He had an explanation, a story for how this key came into his possession. And that story uh, and what I found also in those other four boxes, these letters describing the circumstances uh, from Damon's perspective and other corresponding documents, uh, plus letters from Ben Ali to the governor uh, ended up informing uh, what I wrote for Tickers Med. In addition to, you know, I, I digitized the trial transcripts at the John Lay Library from 1891. It's more than a thousand pages of documents and uh, providing uh, both characters and uh, a lot of the plot turns in the story. I'm curious, were you familiar at all with Cranford before you wrote this tale? I was familiar with the canoe club. Um, <laughs> I, had, I had long aspired to go uh, canoeing there. And thanks to this story, I, I ended up doing a lot of that. And just got to spend some other time in Cranford, uh, which I, I do enjoy very much because of this. But, but no, I, I hadn't spent a lot of time there beforehand. 
you talked about the research going up to Albany and, and some of the things that you found up there and such, but there was also some local research here in Cranford that was involved. Vic Ferry from the Cranford Historical Society and others from the Historical Society uh, were able to maybe fill in a, a few blanks on, on what Cranford was like at that time. Yes, uh, the Cranford Historical Society was incredibly helpful, both in terms of my ability to just talk with people that had had studied Cranford for a long time. And, uh, you know, they have an incredible amount of resources, photos, documents. If you listen to the story, you'll see that the carnival that used to be held, uh, sort of Venetian carnival that used to be held in Cranford, which was known as the Venice of New Jersey at the time, they had all these wonderful archival materials about that. And so that really colored not just the facts of the story, but colored the imagery that I ended up using. This, as I mentioned, was an Audible original, so it is only available as an audiobook. Uh, Christine Bam was the narrator of the audiobook. I'm curious if you had any interaction with her in terms of how she interpreted the characters that you wrote about. I did. She's wonderful. I was incredibly pleased. I did have some input in uh, who we selected for a narrator, but you know, you don't know how it's going to turn out until you listen to it. And I was so pleased at what she did. Uh, she has an incredible range, uh, and she can just slip in and out of all these different characters so seamlessly and, and differentiate each one and make each one uh, come alive. Uh, I was really impressed. I talked to her for several hours about the story um, and about each character, and it was, it was just a, a really a rewarding process as the writer uh, to then hear the voices inside of my head come alive. I, I can't describe it, but it makes me really want to, well, just write more and uh, work with excellent people like Christine again. Having listened to the book, and you know, I can certainly attest to, to what you talk about, where she's doing female characters, male characters, so many different accents that she's doing, a Southern accent, an Irish accent, a German accent, so many different things. And how she keeps all of that straight is just uh, astounding to me. You know, she's incredibly versatile because she's had a, an interesting life. I don't want to go uh, into too much, uh, but she has uh, experience with a lot of languages in her life um, and uh, has, has, as an actor, I think, portrayed so many different characters that she just has this consummate range. When you were writing this, did you know that it was going to be only an audio book or was that something that you discovered after it was purchased, so to speak? Like you, I'm a, I'm a great lover of audiobooks and audio drama and radio dramas uh, overall. Uh, so I was really excited about doing something in that vein. I had not before, other than I was a great consumer of audible books mm -hmm. um, and dramas on audio and on radio. When I sold it to them, pitched it to them, uh, that was my intention. And also, as a, as a writer, um, it's a little bit more like writing for stage or film or something like that, which was, which was enticing to me, too. You spend a lot of time as a writer thinking about how words appear on the page, and I think that's very important when you're writing for the page. But also, when you write for the ear, I think that, that opens up a, a new, new avenues for the writer um, and also makes our, our brain uh, sensitive to how things sound in a new way. So it was uh, fun and uh, educational thing for me that I'm sure will continue to influence me as a writer, uh, whether I'm writing for Audible or for the page or who knows something else. <laughs> well, one of the things that's, that's going to be coming up is in April, uh, an opportunity for folks in Cranford to 
hear directly from you. Tell me a little bit about what's planned. Uh, maybe not all the details are, are firm yet, but uh, at least give us a little bit of a teaser as to what we can look forward to. Well, what I hope to do is I hope to be able to talk a little bit more about the real life backstory uh, of this case um, and at greater length, some of the evidence that I uncovered uh, in, in the archives in Albany, uh, but also in other, other research findings and some of what uh, you can determine from reading through those transcripts. Uh, it's, it's an interesting case, and I think that it has a, a lot of relevance today as we examine our history and examine some of the pre- prejudices in the justice system historically and how that relates to some of the things we see today. Uh, certainly on the news, uh, you can read about uh, any number of wrongful convictions um, and other problems in the justice system that really have antecedents uh, that are visible in this case. Uh, also, you know, in terms of a media study, I think that uh, there's a lot of relevance there uh, between some of the sort of sensational coverage of news today and what happened at this time during the turn of the century. So I hope to dig into some of those those topics. Uh, the the event will be held at the Cranford Community Center. It's uh, being sponsored by the Cranford Historical Society. And it was uh, really helpful to me during my research phase. And it's April 23rd. That happens to be the anniversary of when the murder took place in 1891. Oh, interesting little uh, similarity there that that's the same date. Anything that uh, you're working on now that you would like to give us a little bit of a a preview of that uh, might be further down the pike? I do hope to write a little bit more about uh, this case. I had begun this as a historical fiction, as, as we talked about. But then as I researched it more and more, I realized that uh, there was really an important bit of just raw history that needed to be examined. So I hope to write a little bit more about this case and the real life story that inspired Takers Mad. And then there's a few other projects I do have, both audio and print, that are in the early stages at this point. A lot to look forward to. We've been talking today on Cranford Radio with Luke Jared Cummer. He is the author of an Audible original audiobook, Takers Mad. Luke? Thanks so much for taking some time out to chat with me today. Hey, thank you, Bertie. I appreciate it.